0: I'm Nicondro Yanachi, web content strategist at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Today, we visit the early days of the American Republic to explore the presidency of George Washington. As we all know, the 2016 Democratic National Convention was held in Philadelphia this year, and as a part of that major event, the center hosted leading presidential historians and constitutional scholars to discuss our first president and the lessons we can draw when choosing a president today. Here's Jeff to get us started.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution, which is, thank you. No, no. You know what you have to clap for, but before you can clap, you have to recite it along with me, which is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the US Constitution on a non-partisan basis. Beautiful. Aren't they well-trained? Yes. This is a congregation that knows how to recite its mantra, but I have to confess to you, ladies and gentlemen, the Constitution Center staff is full of consternation because we have this beautiful motto, which all of you recite, but then everyone thinks we're federally funded, which we're not. So I think I'm gonna add to that mantra the fact that despite this inspiring charter, we are a private nonprofit and we rely on the support of wonderful friends like you. So thank you very much. And if you can memorize that sentence, then we're gonna be in very good shape as well. Um, It's been an extraordinary convention week here at the Constitution Center. It began with an amazing panel at Congress Hall with presidential historians about the presidency and the Constitution. We then trooped across the mall for a great discussion with Senators Coons and Durbin about the Senate and the Constitution. We've had three days of political fest with the stars from the West Wing and senators debating political trivia. Uh, But the constitutional capstone of our programming is this evening's panel. uh, Presented in collaboration with our wonderful friends at Mount Vernon, George Washington's Presidential Library, we're here to discuss the constitutional legacy of President Washington. And thanks to the great generosity of our partners, uh, led by Douglas Bradburn, who's the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon who deserves a very robust round of applause, Um, along with uh, Stephen McCloud and his colleagues, we're able to display George Washington's own original copy of the Constitution. This is one of the most priceless documents in constitutional history. Please go see it when you leave if you haven't already. It's in the great presidential powers exhibit in the Annenberg Room, just to the left of the information desk. And uh, Mount Vernon is lending it to us for the week. It'll go back to them, and then we'll have a reproduction of it. But um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to ask Doug, Doug to tell you about it in a second. Doug is joined by two other remarkable scholars of George Washington, um, Ed Larson. Cell phones off, ladies and gentlemen, please. Ed, Ed Larson is the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law and University Professor of History at Pepperdine University. He's the author of this beautiful new book, uh, George, the time, the, the time of the framing was better in no respects. There was no air conditioning and so forth, but it didn't have cell phones, which was a good thing. Um, uh, Ed has just written George Washington Nationalist, which is hot off the presses and is a beautiful and concise introduction to Washington's nationalist vision. And he is joined by the great Akilamar. Amar. Akhil, as those of you who have seen us here before knows, was my constitutional law teacher in law school. This great teacher kindled my passion for the Constitution. He has now, he's now America's teacher of the Constitution. And every time we're lucky enough to hear him at the NCC, um, the whole audience is as inspired by the Constitution as I am. Please join me in welcoming Doug Bradburn, Ed Larson, and Akilamar. Doug, let us begin with you. You've lent us this beautiful document. Tell us about the acts of Congress. How significant is it? And most importantly of all, what are the marginalia that Mm. Washington wrote in the margins of the Constitution reminding him of his constitutional duties?
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted uh, delighted to be here.
1: A mic drop is required in all
2: yeah, it's cool good. events. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I, before I launch into that, let me say briefly you know, what a great institution this is, and how, how excited I am to be a part of it and our partnership in which you'll come to Mount Vernon this fall uh, to debate some aspects of the Constitution. Uh, Mount Vernon is also all privately funded, and it's the home of George Washington, and it's been managed by the Mount Vernon Ladies' Association since the 1850s. Uh, and which is an extraordinary organization uh, which led the way, of course, of women's leadership uh, in America. And if this is the year where we get the first woman president, they will be following the regents of Mount Vernon who have been uh, running George Washington for that long. And we have here with us today Philadelphia's own Mrs. Sarah Colson, who is the regent elect of the Mount Vernon Ladies' Association, oh, wow. who is right uh, up here in front. <laughs> <clears throat> So the Ladies' Association uh, have been managing George Washington's estate since the 1860s to make it available for everyone to visit, and they believed that people coming there didn't know enough about George Washington around the turn of the 20th century, or turn of the 21st century, and so they uh, raised the money to create an education center and museum, which opened in 2006. And then on the heels of that, they decided George Washington needs his own presidential library. And so they raised the money to build that library and endow its programs, of which I'm honored to be the first director. Now in the process of building that library, they acquired the document that you asked me about that's here on loan. Uh, It sold at auction at Christie's for $9.8 million in 2012. And you said, wow, that's a lot of money. So why, why is it so significant? Uh, well the reason it's so significant is, what it is, This is a book that was given to George Washington by Congress after the first session of the first Congress after the Constitution. Uh, so he becomes president in April of 1789, and that first session of Congress lasts from between March to September of 1789, and that's the session that creates, uh, the government. It creates the executive branch, it creates the judiciary department, it creates all the executive offices, it, uh, creates the first taxes. Uh, It, of course, passes the resolutions that will be the Bill of Rights, ultimately. And so at the end of that session, they print out the acts that they pass. So the book is called An Acts Passed at a Congress Between Such and Such a Date, Held in New York. Uh, And in addition to that, it also has in it a copy of the Constitution. So the book that you can see here uh, is George Washington's copy. It has his binding that he put on it. It says President of the United States. And it opens up. It has his... Beautiful signature on the title page. Um, but the great thing about it is he, he sometime between receiving that book and, and giving the first State of the Union Address in 1790, he sat down and reread the Constitution and he marked up little marginalia. So what you'll see is in Article I, which is, as you all know, all about the legislative branch, uh, he, 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 in those parts where the legislative powers are mixed with the presidency, where the president has some role to play, he just put little brackets in on the side, wrote, President. (laughs) And then Article 2, which, as you know, is all about the executive branch, right up at the top where it says, the executive of the United States shall be in the president of the United States, he wrote, President. Okay? So, that's me. So, he goes down, and and when it gets to the section which says, uh, he shall have power, and it lists out the powers, he writes, President Powers, right there. And then beneath that, where it says that he shall take care of the laws, be faithfully executed, he writes required. And so those few words that he placed on that document are extraordinary because it really shows a, a, a few things. An aspect of George Washington's character, which is a tremendously diligent person, wants to make sure that he's doing things that he's supposed to be doing. He's binding himself to the fundamental rule of law, the Constitution, at a time when he's already been president for nine months. And of course, he was the first president, so he could have done a lot of different things. But he wants to be very careful uh, that he's doing it uh, in the right way. It's around the time that he he marks up this Constitution, kind of in the way that we would use a highlighter. You know, he's really just focusing the mind here as he's reading. Uh, but it's at the same moment that he writes this beautiful letter to Catherine Macaulay Graham on January 8th or 9th of 1790, uh, in which he writes that, You know, few people know how difficult this challenge has been. Everything I do is subjected to interpretation. Everything I do is, is a possibility to set precedent. I walk on untrodden ground. He's a man at the moment that he's writing in that constitution that he's, he's highlighting his role that knows exactly where he is in the flow of history. And that I think is one of the extraordinary things about his mature leadership at that point. As president, he knows what's at stake in that moment. Uh, and he's very aware of it, and the, the, the letter to Catherine McCauley Graham is fantastic because Washington isn't so revealing all the time as you might want him to be uh, in his letters about how he's feeling, but that one, uh, he does sort of uh, bare his soul a little bit about the challenges that they face to get to that moment of one successful year of a government. He'd just come back from New England to see if people thought the government was, was a good thing, if it was working. Uh, he, he put himself out there as the president, as the people's representative, the only office in the Constitution that represents the whole nation, uh, and he and he was delighted with what he saw when he, he, he thought the economy was growing, things were looking up, and of course he didn't know what was to come, and we'll talk about it more this evening, uh, was that all of a sudden, uh, going from setting up the government to fighting over what the policies should be to move the nation forward, you start to get a lot more uh, controversy, even within his own team. So it's an extraordinary document, and I'm delighted we were able to lend it to you here, and I hope everybody gets a chance uh, to see it.
1: Well, thank you again for lending it, and we are really looking forward to coming to Mount Vernon in the fall Mm -hmm. and continuing this great collaboration. Mm -hmm. Ed Larson, you've just written this beautiful uh, introduction to Washington's nationalism. And you describe how after taking the radical act, which made people weep of actually stepping down as commander in chief of the armed forces and returning like Cincinnati's to his farm, Washington became concerned about populist forces that were threatening property rights and making it possible for demagogues to threaten liberty. And he wanted to support a government that was energetic enough to achieve common purposes and to protect property and therefore agreed to preside over the Constitutional Convention. Tell us more about what the core of Washington's nationalist constitutionalist vision was. What powers did he want the presidency to have at the convention and what powers did he think the national government
3: should have as a whole? I think to understand anyone, you have to understand what their ultimate purpose is. and. It, it, People have a lot of purposes. Some people want power. Some people want money. Some people want lots of wives. Some people want this. Some people want that. Washington was all knew himself. And what Washington wanted was to leave a legacy. And when he was young, he said, I want to be famous, um, but not famous like the Kardashians. He wanted to make a difference. He wanted to make a difference with his life. He understood himself. And as he matured, he was a child in the Enlightenment, much like Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin. And, and he developed this belief in Republican virtue and in the possibility of Republican rule. Remember, at the time, almost every nation had a monarch there, or a dictator of some sort. Um, there was divine right of kings or there was, there was a power um, oligarchy, and he believed in Republican rule. He'd read the people, uh, the Jean Locke, and learned from those. And when the revolution came, he signed up for the revolution, even though he didn't need to. Even though his mother tried to keep him from signing up and to stay home and take care of her, he had a a state, he didn't need that. But what he wanted to do, he believed in the Republican vision. And so he went and fought the revolution, nine years, without pay or without leave. He led the revolution. And he led it by consensus. And he stepped down, in part, because then he wanted to create a government of the people. That's a phrase he used often in his letters. Lincoln later added by and for. But Washington would often say, I I believe in a government of the people. And he stepped down. And just before he's stepping down, he was worried about how things were going off the rails, He wanted to turn it over to civilian rule, but it seemed like the Congress of the Articles of Confederation couldn't do anything. They couldn't manage anything. And the states, because the Articles of Confederation created a league of friendship, that's the phrase, um, it had about the same amount of power as the United Nations. Mm -hmm. Every state could, could appoint as many delegates as it wanted. And but they, but they paid them, the states paid them, the states could recall them, the states could instruct them how to vote. And so the states were sovereign, not the not central government. And Washington had been imbibed. He went to the Revolution, I suppose, as a Virginian, but he came back as an American because he led people from all the states in this war. And he thought America could be a great place, could be something new under the sun. He really believed that. With people with the government of the people, something fundamentally different. And he saw it all going haywire. And so two of his key last acts as commander in chief, he wrote two tremendous documents, the circular letter to the states and a description of a military after peace, a peacetime military. And in this circular letter to the states, he pleads with the states to get a stronger central union and it outlines the things they need. And among the things they thought they needed was we need one nation that has control over interstate and international commerce. He's thinking ahead of the, the EU, that as each were an individual state. Nation. Each state was a nation. If each state was individual, they could write their, make to the, print their own paper money. They could build tariffs against each other. We would have all these little states with a limited economy fighting against each other because you always fight with your nearest neighbor. And he thinks we need to break down these trade barriers because we can make the whole pie bigger. Now, he knew that because he, he, he ran a farm and he wanted to sell things, and he realized if we can, if we can break down tariff barriers, um, if we're not like England, breaking off on their own, if we stay in the EU, we can have a greater union. He understood that. Hamilton did too. And that's why he brings Hamilton in to lead that. So did Robert Morris. So did others. So that was his one concern. The other concern is, like other Americans of his day, he realized the future of America lie on the frontier. What made America different? What made the possibility to pray independent people? In in Europe, almost everyone was some sort of a serf. 90% of people were serf. They were trapped in their jobs. They were trapped on their farms. They were trapped as being a a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker or mostly just a serf on a farm. In America, there was always the West. They'd come over to the colonies. They'd be able to establish land of their own. We could move West. Now, moving West required getting that territory after the Revolution, and he fought hard for that. So America got all the West the unoccupied west to the to the Mississippi River but that meant opening the land for settlement by other Americans so people wouldn't be trapped on the East Coast rich people he said could invest out there and become richer people without means could go out there and live and get a start and so he wrote that second document we need a country that is strong enough to open the West that was his military establishment. It would be a military establishment set on the frontier to open it up. In contrast, what he saw when he was after he was out of office is the central government did not have the power to raise taxes and therefore could not maintain an army. And no state was interested in opening the frontier because they wanted to keep the people in their state working. They didn't want them to go west in the in the unoccupied land. So he wanted a government powerful enough writing that from the beginning powerful enough to raise to raise taxes maintain an army open the west for all the people because that was the american dream lie out there that was the property property rights but it was also individual freedom because we won't be free if we don't if we can't do that so interstate commerce taxing power an army to open the west Maintain property rights. He saw that during his, when he went out of, out of um, office, went, out of the, um, went back home to Mount Vernon, he saw all that collapsing. He saw states being taken over by demagogues. He saw states that had developed constitutions with a one-house legislature ruling all where you'd get a majority faction that would take away the rights of the the creditors and printing paper paper money like crazy, destroying property rights in Georgia and in Rhode Island. He saw the West being lost. The the Native Americans had pushed back in and retaken two-thirds of Georgia because there was no local militia and no army to push them out. He saw his own territories. When he went west to visit his own territories that he owned in the land he owned in Ohio, he could not get to them because the Native Americans had pushed back in, and he was warned that if you went to your largest territory, largest land, you would be captured by the Indians that were lying in wait for you. Uh, He saw Vermont actively conspiring with Canada to leave the Union. He saw talk of a Southern Confederacy breaking off. He saw states going their different ways. He saw Shays' Rebellion breaking down property rights because you had a creditor-ruled government in Massachusetts. He saw all those things happening, and what he, he said, he wrote hundreds of letters, all in the same tone that was in his, his circular letter to the states in his a letter on military establishment. And they all called for, we need a new constitution. We need a new government that will give us the power to have central control over interstate commerce, stop the states from printing paper money, can maintain an army, can raise and spend money for national defense, and have a strong enough leader, a strong enough executive, yet a democratically elected legislature, courts that will enforce rule of law. He, he, he had a plan he had a design he had a concern and that's what he took to philadelphia that's what he led as as the as chairing the the constitutional convention everything that he had been talking about for years came about was put into that constitutional convention he he worked with the delegates he listened to them he pulled together the final document and it's often said that, one, at that time, his, 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 his closest, almost an aide, he was a, a James Madison, lived nearby. James Madison spent much of the period before the Constitutional <coughs> Convention actually at Mount Vernon working on the plan. Um, and it's often said that James Madison is the architect of the Constitution. Well, if you break down the pieces, you'll find out that if James Madison was the architect of the Constitution, then George Washington was his general contractor. And any one of you who have ever built a house or added an addition to the house, you will know it looks much more like what the general contractor has in mind than that architect who drew the blueprint. That was George Washington's vision, and that's what he carried through, and that's the Constitution that we honor in this building. Rightly honor. It was so much the work of George Washington. Thank you for
1: that beautiful introduction to Washington's uh, thinking. Uh, You summarize it so well in the book, describing his goals as... Uh, Respect Abroad, Prosperity at Home and Development Westward. And yet, despite Washington's vision of an energetic executive, uh, Article Two, which defines executive power, is pretty short and pretty vague. It has a couple of specific uh, duties, a four-year term, federal veto, power to make treaties, but it doesn't specify whether there are powers beyond those specifically granted in the text, as opposed to Article One, which limits Congress to the powers that are herein granted. And Akhil, in your Beautiful book, America's Unwritten Constitution. And Ladies and gentlemen, you know you always get a homework assignment whenever you come to the <laughs> NCC. You must read Akhil's books as introductions, rigorous but clear to the essence of constitutional thinking. And I would begin with America's Constitution, I think is the best one to start with. And then America's Unwritten Constitution, which goes beyond the text, describes how practice has come to define our constitutional values. And in that great book, you note a series of presidential uh, powers that are taken for granted today, but are due to Washington's actions, leaderships, and constitutional interpretation, including diplomatic recognition, treaty negotiations, the cabinet, Mm -hmm. not always soliciting the Senate's advice, removal of executive officers. It feels like Passover when I'm reciting the plagues. One, two, three. But the, you don't have to. You okay. Don't, okay. Exactly. Locus. Plagues. Die um, yeah. Exactly. You don't have to. Uh, don't go through all of them. Okay. But, but give us a sense of how so much of the constitutional presidency that we know today is due to Washington's practice rather than the constitutional text. So it's such an honor
4: to be with you all. Um, So yes, uh, the Constitution is something, in general, new under the sun in that before these guys met over there, um, uh, really, uh, democracy exists almost nowhere in the planet. Mm -hmm. And today, it exists over half the planet by population and landmass, basically on the model of the American Constitution. So we are inventing a new thing. but, uh, and we put it to a vote. Most of the constitution actually though does have state constitutional antecedents. States had written constitutions. The Massachusetts one was actually put to a vote, so it was New Hampshire. Uh, bicameral legislatures in most of the states. Um, judi- um, uh, uh, judges and juries. Um, some traditions of judicial independence in, in most of, of the states. Um, uh, bills of rights, written bills of rights, beginning with George Mason's in in Virginia. So many of the features of the American Constitution really um, echo state antecedents. This is um, since uh, Jeff has been very generous to mention books, he has a great one out on Brandeis. Um, and uh, Louis Brandeis later in our story, and it's a story of religious inclusion and toleration, and there's no religious qualification to be president of the United States, folks, and you need to understand that. But but Louis Brandeis talks about states as laboratories, as, as sort of models for experimentation. That's true from the beginning. States are doing things, and in lots of ways, the federal constitution Madison is looking out over the state experience mixing and matching picking best state practices on issue after issue after issue and putting them in this composite federal document but here's the thing the most original and problematic part of the constitution is article 2 cuz there's no great so most of the states have bicameral legislatures and they've got you know judges and juries but there's no state that has anything really very close to the American presidency so you have a model of a monarch that um, in England, he's hereditary, no one picks him, he hands off power um, uh, to um, uh, um, his, his sons, he's, he's the head of church and state um, uh, uh, in a kind of um, uh, sacerdotal priestly tradition. Well, we don't want that. That's way too, you know, we rebelled against divine right of kings. Okay, so we don't want an English monarch, and most of the state governors are puny little figures that um, that aren't going to be big enough to hold this country together and, um they're not in eight of the states they're not even elected independently they're picked by the legislature in no state is there a four-year term in only a couple of states is there a veto pen and actually in in, in one of those two it's shared by a, a council um, the pardon power is constricted even today you see the governor of Virginia can't, has to pardon people one by one by one if he wants to restore voting rights, rather than en masse. So, so the governors are way too. Uh, there's not four-year terms. There's not perpetual reeligibility. And so, and many say, so you want something bigger than a governor? And much less than a king, and the space between those is vast. And Article Two is trying to basically define the rough outlines of something, you know, you know, bigger than a bread box, but you know, smaller, you know, uh, than um, uh, uh, Montana. So, but, but, like, <laughs> okay, well, what's in between? And here's the point: and the text doesn't quite tell us. so I write this book on the written constitution and article 2 is the big hole so I have to write a book it's called America's unwritten constitution and them's fighting words what do you mean unwritten professor Um, well here's one thing that I do mean that for the presidency far more important than what the text says because it doesn't say that much and and to Washington just as president you know president power is required but there's not that much text Far more important than what the text says is what George Washington did. He actually gives us, by his example, because he is treading on untrodden ground, he gives us the model for what our president is supposed to be and do. For example, I'll give you two or three, and, and um, these are uncontroversial. Conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats all agree on these things, and they're not in the text. Can the president fire a cabinet officer at will. Because when you read the text it doesn't say that and actually in the Federalist Papers Hamilton suggests that just as you need the Senate's consent to appoint a cabinet officer you're going to need their consent to fire a cabinet officer. That's not our tradition. On day one it's clear to everyone that Obama if he wants can fire Hank Paulson and put in Timothy Geithner. he can't apparently fire Ben Bernanke, who's head of the Fed. Like, what's up with that? Well, here's what's up with that. Under Washington's administration, it's established that basically presidents have the power to fire cabin officers at will. I'll give you two other examples and then um, uh, uh, shut up. Um, uh, so, can a president abrogate a treaty? Just unilaterally say, well, you know, we no longer um, recognize. Uh, The Taiwanese government, we recognize the People's Republic of China, which is what Jimmy Carter did, you see. Um, uh, And he did it because George Washington established that he had the power of unilateral recognition. The text isn't clear on this at all. But after the French Revolution, it's Washington that says, I'm g- I personally am going to decide whether we're going to recognize the new French revolutionaries as the lawful government of France, or stick with King Louis, who at that point was in prison. And you could make a comeback. And if he does, and you've recognized the revolutionaries, that's a, that's a big mistake. Your president needs to know something about the rest of the world, it turns out, you see. Um, and just, just saying. And Washington non
1: nonpartisan basis. No, no he has to be
4: nonpartisan, <laughs> but i don't have to. He can bring in people. I get to tell you, you know, um, and, and I haven 't mentioned any names, just saying that this Revol- this generalissimo who's George Washington, he needs to understand foreign affairs and america 's place in the world, because the world is going to try to crush us. They're, they're, everyone is rooting against the United States, and, and you need, and it 's a dangerous world, it still is. And presidents have the unilateral power to abrogate treaties, for example, and for good or evil, like the NATO treaty. The president could abrogate that. No, he has the lawful power to do that under not the text, it doesn't. It's not clear on this, but the Washington precedence. Um, can you send a secret envoy? Um, uh, well, yes. Nixon did. That's Kissinger before Carter does this. Nixon, Nixon is sending Kissinger as a secret envoy. Why can he do that? Not because the text says he can. The text is not clear. George Washington did it. He sent Governor Morris as a secret envoy without even getting the Senate's permission to do all of that. So Washington sets precedent after precedent after precedent. Um, Washington, the Constitution doesn't really talk about a cabinet. Um, as such a collective body of advisors but Washington who is a consultative sort he actually surrounds himself with really smart people who are not yes men. that's really important for a president to actually surround himself or herself with really smart people, listen to them. Washington learned this from his, as a general. He had a war council, and he made and, and he l- l- listened to smart people. As president, he brings Thomas Jefferson to, on his left and Hamilton on his right and they disagree because that's what's gonna happen, but he listens to them and then he makes his own call. The text doesn't talk about that, but Washington sets precedent after precedent after precedent, I'll say one final thing. He steps down from being a revolutionary general. He has the only army on the continent and if he wants to, he can make himself dictator. And that's what the ancient world had, had, had done. Caesar, you know, making himself um, a Julius Caesar, um, um, and make himself a, a, a supreme executive. Darius, Darius in English. Um, um, uh, Cromwell will name himself Lord Protector. Napoleon will grab the crown in Washington's lifetime, or, you know, in, in, right in this era, from the Pope and put it on his own head. Washington has supreme military power, and he gives it all up before the revolution, I mean before the Constitution. That's what um, uh, Ed was, was talking about. And, and George Third says if he gives up his army, he'll be the greatest man in the world. And he was even before coming back out of retirement to Philadelphia to save his country a second time. He steps away and he does it a second time with the presidency. He could have been re- he was unanimously elected under the first electoral college. He was unanimously re-elected. He could have been unanimously re re and he chooses once more to go to the farm, to retire, and establish this principle. He's, a, he's not a man of, wor- of, of many words. He's actually taciturn. But to establish a principle that the republic has to be greater than any one person, he establishes a two-term tradition that then later gets put in the text, but not because the original text says it. It doesn't. He could have been present for life. But he establishes a two-term tradition, just as he establishes civilian supremacy by walking away from military power. Much of our Constitution, this is what I mean by an unwritten Constitution, Um, it's established not by activist judges today, but by the model of George Washington.
1: Beautiful. You can see, ladies and gentlemen, from Akeel's passion why he is one of the great teacher of constitutional uh, history and law in America. Uh, Doug, we've learned about Washington's uh, dutiful annotations of the Constitution. We've learned from Ed about his nationalist vision. We've learned from Akeel about his practice which shaped the modern presidency. And yet there's a vigorous debate today about the scope of executive power. We saw it in the split Supreme Court decision about whether President Obama has the power to defer uh, the deportation of immigrants without congressional authorization. And this debate about the scope of executive power goes back throughout American history. Theodore Roosevelt thought the president could do anything that wasn't explicitly forbidden by the Constitution. William Howard Taft, the subject of my next book, believed the opposite, (laughs) that the president could only act if his actions were specifically authorized by the Constitution. That debate, Akhil said Washington had Hamilton and Jefferson on his right and left, went back to the founding of the Republic, with Hamilton advocating far broader presidential powers, especially over the economy, and Jefferson advocating a much more restrictive view. Tell us about the debates that Washington faced over the scope of presidential power, as embodied by Hamilton and Jefferson, and which of those visions he embraced.
2: Um, Well, thank you. Uh, uh, A grace note on, on your point about knowing about foreign affairs, one of the first objects George Washington purchases when he becomes president is a globe. Yes. And, and it's an extraordinary object that we have at Mount Vernon that you should all come and, if you see, and, and see. And if you
4: go to um, the National Gallery of Art, a spectacular painting by Edward Savage is called yep. The Washington mm-hmm. Family. Um, and, and you'll see literally at there. his feet that yeah. beautiful globe. And there are all sorts of maps that are laid out on the table. And yes. you know, he's a surveyor. He's interested in land in the West. So they're thinking about uh, America <laughs> yeah, sure. and, and the world, very spatially.
2: After Washington's death, there's an auction of a lot of things from the mansion, and one of those items is the Globe, and actually Jefferson sends someone to try and get the Globe while Jefferson's president of the United States in Washington, D.C., and he's not able to win it uh, at the auction. So the Globe could have had uh, a lifetime uh, in another president's. Anyway, so the question, back to the uh, back to, to the government. question uh, about uh, Washington kind of struggling with the, the uh, the powers of the presidency and the different kind of advice he's getting. Well, the fight over the bank is really a fight over the the legislature's power in this sense. It's a fight over whether or not the Constitution gives the legislature the power to create corporations. And, and Madison and Jefferson are arguing that it doesn't, uh, that it's not an enumerated power. Uh, and, and Hamilton argues that it does. And so the fight that Washington is having is actually whether he should veto mm-hmm. that bill that's passed so that would have been a way the the president could have been making a con- a statement about the meaning of the constitution if he would have vetoed it aggressively a, a better example about him thinking about can, the pre- Can you
1: just tell us more about that what did, how did he resolve that uh, debate
2: Well so the the fight over the fight over what to do with the the, uh, the challenge of the credit of the United States was so uh, kind of multiple phases the first fight was over is the country gonna assume all the state debt from the Revolutionary War and create one national debt out of it uh, and fund it at par? So there's, that's a fight, because maybe you shouldn't fund it at par because all the debt's owned by these speculators now and not the original holders of the debt. The original holders were people like poor soldiers and they sold it for pennies on the dollar. And if you're paying the speculators you know dollar for dollar, then they're making a fortune and the people that you, you should have been paid got, got, got screwed. Uh, that's a challenge there. There's a big fight over that. Uh, and, of course, that's only resolved with the fight over the Capitol and where the Capitol will be. And Washington is at play, and this, this is a famous dinner table compromise. If you all know the musical Hamilton, this is happening in the, in the Room Where It Happens uh, song where uh, Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton uh, basically make a deal so that the Congress will assume the state debts and fund it at par, but that the capital will move from New York City to eventually, well, first to Philadelphia and then eventually uh, to this swamp on the Potomac. Uh, And and Washington's actually more involved in that than most scholars know. Uh, He he very much covered his tracks to the extent he is involved. But there's a couple of letters which say things like, the Big Knife wants this to happen. And that's his, his, his Indian name is the Big Knife, George Washington. Uh, and, and so he's called that. So that's, so that's a, a sideshow, in a way, to the, to the larger question then. I mean, Jefferson supported as Secretary of State, just come back from France, supports the idea that the credit of the United States has to be figured out. Um, but when he sees the uh, plan for the bank, which Hamilton reveals later on that year, all of a sudden the scales fall from his eyes, as he says. And he realizes that Hamilton's trying to create a British state financial system in America. I mean, Hamilton is writing the bank statute with statutes of the Bank of England on his desk. So it's Mm -hmm. not exactly, you know, uh, it's an easy leap to say, "Uh uh-oh, he's trying to recreate the Bank of England Mm -hmm. in the United States, and didn't we just fight a revolution to get away from this kind of system? Uh, And so then the fight becomes about the Constitution. Well, this is a, a matter of constitutionality as well as policy. There's no power in the Constitution that allows the Congress to create corporations. So they fight it out, and uh, Washington listens, as, as you said, he deliberates maturely. One of his expressions is, deliberate maturely and execute promptly. He listens to both sides. Uh, well, Jefferson actually visits him at Mount Vernon during one of the off cycles uh, and really lays it on, and Washington basically agrees with Hamilton. He, he's not going to veto the bank bill. Uh, he's going to support it. The Attorney General, Edmund Randolph, had also supported it. Uh, Jefferson would always complain that Randolph was like a reed blowing in the wind, and you never know which side he was going to end up on. But Washington was, a, was also kind of navigating this middle road often. But when he, he refused to veto the bank bill, that led immediately to Madison, it who was, it was in the House of uh, Representatives, and, and Jefferson to create the first national opposition newspaper, the National Gazette, where they hired Philip Forno. And so the, the immediate consequence of making that a decision was that you, you start to get an organized political opposition, because really now the stakes are higher for Madison. You can't have uh, backroom deals anymore, because if you're going to violate the Constitution, then the only way he's going to win really is if he, if he gets the people that agree with him elected. So you need to beat him in the House of Representatives, and Madison can't beat Hamilton in the House. So you're going to organize a majority faction, and, and that's the beginning of the party system, ultimately. Um, one other point on the, the question then about, the, uh, about presidential authority is really, and it speaks to some of the uh, uh, precedents mentioned already, and it's during the French Revolution, and is the question of uh, the proclamation of neutrality whether the president of the United States, the, the, the Constitution says that the Congress has the power to declare war. So who has the power to declare peace? Uh, that's sort of the question in some ways. I mean, Washington issues a proclamation of neutrality after the French Revolution has turned radical. Uh, Louis XVI no longer has a head. The, the, Revol- the French have declared a republic. They've got engaged in an international war now with the British. With, uh, with the Austrians, with the number of princes of Europe. and in the United States uh, there is an old treaty with the French from 1778 uh, which says that the United States will defend the, or will, will aid the French with ports and material if they're ever in a, in a defensive war. And so Washington issues a declaration of neutrality and the fight becomes, well, what does neutrality mean? Does it mean uh, that we still abide by this treaty of 78 or is that going to be uh, gotten rid of as well is going to be a strict neutrality between the British and the French and Washington asserts the power of the presidency to really establish foreign policy that the, the presidency and the executive branch is really where foreign policy originates and the behavior of it in a lot of different levels is going to stem from there with the the with the treaty making power still being shared but only at the very end of the story and that that's um you know that for Washington is a crucial summer that Uh, It's 1793, from the arrival of the the French ambassador, Citizen Genet, to the end of that year when he gives his his, uh, State of the Union address and declares that he will set the policy of the country. Um, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary summer. John Adams would remember Philadelphia as an extremely dangerous place, as he would write to Thomas Jefferson. He would say, remember when there were 10,000 people singing La Marseille's and French Republican songs, wanting to drag Washington out of the executive house right over here uh, and, and, and put up a guillotine. And that only the yellow fever epidemic that happened in that fall was the thing that saved the government. So it was an intense time, because a lot of Americans believed that the cause of the French, the cause of liberty, the equality of fraternity, was the cause of the American Revolution. And Washington took a very unpopular stance in that regard in establishing that precedent.
1: Great. Um, Ed, I, I want uh, in a moment to get to questions, because as usual, your questions are so superb. But if you want to chime in on this fascinating uh, point, then please do.
3: Just to reiterate and, and amplify something uh, that Doug just said because I agree with it fully, and he's building on what Akil had said. But let's take it back to the Constitution, because this battle that they're talking about was actually fought in Philadelphia here. All these issues that Washington pulled, yeah, it's the unwritten Constitution, but every single one of these issues was anticipated in Philadelphia, was discussed at great length in Philadelphia. And so let's get to the one you talk about over who has ultimate control over foreign policy. Remember, when Madison came here, he brought the idea of a, what we would make much more closely to a parliamentary um, uh, uh, democracy. The idea in the, Jeff- in the, in the, in the um, Virginia plan was that the legislature would pick the president. And there, but the concern was, well, if the legislature picks the president, the president, even if he has a term, will ultimately be beholden to the the legislature. He'll be their tool because he'll want to get reappointed. And if the term's short, he'll really want to get reappointed. So they'll be the agent. And that's what is working in England. In England, I mean, heck, if they don't like Cameron, he's gone, and they bring in, what's her name? I forget her name. Theresa May. There we got a new person. They almost brought in Boris Johnson. Wouldn't that be scary? (laughs) Whoa, he's crazy. Um, But I mean, he's a nut. Um, but they almost brought him in. we not have any in of those in and types and in America. They, they almost brought him in. But that's what we almost <laughs> had. And the more time it's spent at the Constitutional Convention debating how to create the presidency, as we've heard from Akhil, that was truly the new creation. And if you look at the early part, the original version and the second version, and the third version all the way to September. And remember, the convention only lasts from May to September. The power to draft treaties was exclusively in the Senate. The Senate would draft treaties. Then you would have have power over the foreign policy in the hands of the Senate, that group doing it together. The Senate had the power to pick the judges, sole power. That was much closer to what the states had. The precedent was states. And then one of the delegates from Philadelphia, Governor Morris, had a brilliant idea of the Electoral College. And the Electoral College created a way. Is that
2: the first time you've heard yes, that here? Is, a brilliant yes. idea for the Electoral Created College. a
3: way to have an to elected. No, the reason was we, um, other delegates from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, Wilson, and Uh, And Governor Morris and others, and Benjamin Franklin. They wanted an elected president. Popular election. Popular election for president. But Madison and Washington refused, and so did Pinckney. Why? Because of of slavery. The the Electoral College was not created because we didn't trust the people. It was to protect slavery, because in the South, the slaves couldn't vote and that would mean the free people of the north would win any election for president because all the free people in the north got to vote and two-thirds of the people of South Carolina weren't going to be able to vote for president because they were slaves
4: just for example Pennsylvania in 1800 to pick this state has more free people than Virginia way more voters than Virginia but way fewer electoral votes than Virginia because Virginia gets to count all those slaves, albeit with a um, three-fifths discount. So eight of the first nine presidents you see come from Virginia at the expense of Pennsylvania, which to repeat, in 1800 has more free people and more voters.
3: So Madison, who wants wants the people to vote, fights against the direct election of president. Never passed because of Madison, Washington agreed, Pinckney agreed, the South agreed because of slavery. The Electoral College was, then they figured up the three-fifths compromise for the House of Representatives and then Morris had an idea. We can have, if we borrow the idea of the three-fifths compromise and throw it into the presidency so every state gets the same number of electors as they have senators and representatives, they'll get their slavery boost but they can limit who votes to the white people, to the free people. And so, but what that allows is an election of president, because before they were stuck with legislative appointment of the presidency, because the legislature, of course, each state could pick the legislators, the members of Congress, and they pick the president, and you don't have this worry about this, about the slave states not having as many votes. So they get a way to get an independent election for the president. Now, once they have an independent election for the president, you have a way to have a president who is independent of Congress, who is a representative of, in a way, all the people, not the slaves, but all the other people. Of the nation. Of the nation. Yeah. Representative of the nation, having the stature. And then suddenly, they decide in September, hey, wait, this person can have the power over foreign policy. They can draft the treaties. They can name the judges. Subject only to the advice and consent of the Senate. So that shifts this over, thanks to the Electoral College, thanks to having an independent president, because there's no point in doing it if the president comes from the legislature, appointed by the legislature. And that's the big shift that happens right at the end of the Constitution Convention. All these powers are transferred to the presidency, and Washington votes for all those shifts, because it creates our powerful presidency that we have, and creates then the precedent for Washington saying, because he was there at the Constitution, he knew what they were thinking. It creates the precedent while he can, it's it's not like he invents things. Mm -hmm. He is following the will of the Constitution faithfully. Faithfully execute. If there was ever a man who, required, who faithfully executes the Constitution. And he said, based on my experience, the faithful execution is, I get to name the Supreme Court judges. Oh, they can be turned down by the Senate. I get to, do the foreign policy, of course they can overrule, they cannot confirm my ambassadors. I get to write the treaties, but they have to confirm them. So it moves foreign policy over to the presidency. Now in England, of course, the foreign policy is controlled by the, the, by, by the, uh, by the House of by Parliament. And here it's the presidency. So Washington, in doing all these things that Akeel accurately portrays, is following what he knows is the will of the Constitutional Convention. Superb.
1: Okay, we've got at least 10 great questions. And we've got about 10 minutes. So I'm going to read them fast. One of you can answer them as succinctly as possible. And let's try to get through them, because they're great. Uh, Parties were mentioned. Here's one about them. George Washington, in his farewell address, a pen by Hamilton, argued against factionalism and parties. Was this ever reasonable to expect? Akhil. Uh, it was, uh, we were destined in effect to,
4: um, the, people are going to disagree. Um, everyone was for Washington, he, he's, he, towered head and shoulders above virtually everyone else, almost literally, and, and, and see Jeff's wonderful, uh, little introduction to Signers Hall, where he actually shows you, if you just go over there, how Washington towers over the rest. So he's unanimously elected and re-elected, and he would have been unanimously re-elected. But once he leaves, these other folks start to square off against each other, and one, party nat- one sort of group naturally t- kind of inclines toward France, and the other toward Britain. And you have the emergence of basically this two-party system that's codified Eventually, in an amendment to the Constitution, the, the 12th Amendment that really uh, makes it possible for there to be basically two teams, two parties, squaring off a publicitarian presidency with a, a, a president and a vice president. And here's now the one final thing. It's a, most of our presidents, you just, we just need to say this, because we have to be adults. Most of our presidents have actually been failed presidents. It's an almost impossible Position. You have to do so many different things, and one of the things you have to one of the things you have to do. You have to be legislator in chief and prosecutor in chief and diplomat in chief and spy master in chief and administrator in chief and the leader of the free world. All these things all at once. But you have to be both leader of your party. There's a party meeting right here, and leader of us all. Prime minister and head of state. You know, Queen Elizabeth and Theresa May at once. And, and Washington, because he emerges, he's there before parties, is unique. Because after Washington, there are two parties. And the difficulty of being both leader of a party when America is divided and leader of us all makes it an almost impossible position. And then when you add all the, 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 the responsibilities, so many of them, it's really almost impossible for one person to really do it all
1: well. It was a beautiful answer, but it did not uh, meet the one-minute rule. So, um, but but it was excellent. It was was excellent, nevertheless. Um, So, I'm going to combine two questions, and they're about uh, the scope of federal power. So, one of our uh, guests asked, "Would Washington and the Federalists think we've gone too far today with the power of the federal government, i.e., broad construction of the Commerce Clause?" And another. A friend asks, the converse question, the Republican Party has currently called for shrinking the role of the federal government to a smaller and smaller one. Would Washington agree? Um, Doug, you began to talk about the scope of uh, uh, federal power. Where would he fall in our current debates?
2: That's an impossible question to answer well or in in less than a minute. minute, But I will say, I, I think in general, they'd be surprised at the extent of of uh, uh, power that the federal government I has.
3: Think, I don't think Hamilton would, Washington.
2: Yeah, well, the question's about Washington. Uh, so, he said
3: founders. And, well,
2: I think Washington would be, would be surprised at the extent yeah. of it. I mean, I the notion of balance was always important. The states were always going to be very, very important, and they were dominant for much of the 19th century. I uh, so I, I think that that would, that would be my gut reaction. I agree, great.
4: Uh, But one reason they were dominant is because you couldn't mess with slavery um, and things really change when the states misbehave and we have this in the recent unpleasantness also known as the Civil War um, which result in a whole series of amendments the last sentence of which are the words, Congress shall have power. 13th Amendment, Section 2, 14th Amendment, Section 5, 15th Amendment, Section 2, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Okay, Um, And I'm asking you this as a party game, because it's a really complicated and important question. And you 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 got 30 seconds to answer it. Here we go. (laughs) On Western expansion, this is a a, a gonzo trick here. It can be argued that the Northwest Ordinance is the third founding document of the nation passed by the Confederation Congress in 1787. How did it come about? Why did Southern states agree to it in 30 seconds or less?
3: <laughs> because they wanted to open the, they wanted to open the Northwest territories, and they thought they could better handle without that the Southern territories and they actually thought the Southern territories would open earlier. but the Northwest Ordinance was a founding document. it added new powers, um, it was a product of the of the very much of the Articles of Confederation. It couldn't have been done that way by the Constitution. So it is important and it set a a precedent much like Mm -hmm. Washington's um, presidency. It set a precedent that became the norm for adding new states. And it reflected Washington's vision of progressive settlement. He had already articulated the notion of progressive settlement to open the territories and this institutionalized it so Washington had a role even in the Northwest Ordinance.
4: And it prohibits slavery in language that will be word for word for word the 13th Amendment. It's about homesteading in the West that will be Lincoln's policy of 160 acres in the West. It is a great founding document. And it
3: requires public education. Absolutely.
1: And, uh, that was a beautiful job, actually. A round of applause for that very no. succinct uh... <laughs> okay, Just, Just a few more, because uh, there is a uh, convention uh, to watch. Uh, Akhil, uh, you talked about precedents. Did Washington set any precedents which have been overturned? Well, Washington,
4: with the neutrality proclamation, went a little further, perhaps, Then he should have got out over his skis, so to speak, in which he said not only, you know, um, is, uh, uh, are we not to sort of trying to um, mess in this European conflict between Britain and France, but he seemed to suggest that anyone who did would be federally prosecuted. And there was rightful pushback against that because you know what turns out in our system? Presidents don't unilaterally get to make criminal law policy. It's not a crime unless actually Congress makes it so in the statute that's clearly defined. And it's very important for every president to understand you don't just go around locking people up because you don't like what what they think. Congress has to pass a law with clear definition and even Washington on that one got pushed back and rightly so.
1: Um, Doug, this is a fascinating question. Uh, how did Washington's stoic philosophy affect the decisions of his that shaped the Constitution?
2: Well, that implies that I agree that he had a stoic philosophy. Ah, um, did,
1: let me rephrase it. Did Washington's stoic <laughs> philosophy affect the decisions that shaped the Constitution?
2: Washington believed in deliberating carefully over every decision he made. Uh, he believed in doing little when little should be done and doing what was necessary and no more Mm -hmm. and in that sense he was a minimalist to get the job done you know when he marched the army into Western Pennsylvania for instance he left at Carlisle and went back uh, <laughs> once he was assured that it would achieve the purposes which he put to it, which is assured that the law would be obeyed, that the people who were in rebellion were going to be arrested, and that it was was done. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he was—I uh, mean, he, in the classical sense, he believed in virtue and self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. but he he also believed in the Aristotelian good life. I mean, he had nice things around him, uh, he had a nice table set for him, he, he presented the presidency as a fashionable, you know, solid, uh, uh, beautiful place, not a monarchy, but also not as severe as Jefferson would, who showed up on horseback and dressed in black and wearing his robe when he met with foreign dignitaries and that sort of thing. So Washington Slippers. was not quite the stoic, I think, that uh, we, we might want to imagine him to be.
1: Nice. All right, well, there is a question. I know it's on everyone's mind, so I'm going to ask it to everyone for the final round. uh, And uh, here it is. Uh, What singular advice would Washington impart uh, to the next president uh, who we elect in November? Uh, Akhil.
4: Wow, that's um, that's a hard one, but the very first uh, um, thing that uh, the, pre- the presidency is a constitutionally defined office. We're here at the National Constitution Center. The very first, the oath of office of the presidency is prescribed word for word for word in a very short document. It's the first obligation of the it doesn't make one president One's present before one takes it after actually one has already become president. One takes this oath and it's an oath to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And I do think, and I didn't know, this is the Charles and Swain book, uh, 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 the one that you have, Charles and Swain, the, the first uh, yes. volume. Yeah, yeah, OK, so yeah. I've, 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 Yale has a, a version, but not Washington's yeah. version. But, and so I'm learning, as you are, that the first thing that Washington does is he re-reads it, and, and we know he re-reads it carefully, he takes the Constitution seriously. So I would say that would be great advice.
3: <laughs> Ed Larson. Both as general and as president, Washington, as Doug has said, was slow to decide, del- clear in his deliberation, but he always listened. He always listened before a battle or before making a decision, such as on the, the, the bank or, or, the, or, the, or, the, or the Neutrality Act. He would gather together his lieutenants or his cabinet or advisors a wide range of people and listened. Listen and hear all sides. And then brought his own wisdom into making a decision. So one, and he also was a master of compromise, never on principle, never on ends. He had his ends, but compromise on means. He would listen to to others about how to go about something. So I think he'd call to be an effective president, just as to be an effective general would be To listen to others, to take advice, weigh that advice, be willing to be humble in the sense that you're willing to compromise on means. Don't get your back up. Be willing to compromise to bring people in. Because he brought people in. One little story. Pennsylvania, in ratifying the Constitution, ran it down the throat wrongly mm-hmm. wrongly ran it down the throat of the minority mm-hmm. did not let them talk did not let them participate mm-hmm. and as a result they were unreconciled and there were riots there was um, uh, freeing of prisoners there was all sorts of problem and washington wrote to the other states says don't do it that way don't do it that way he wrote to philadelphia pennsylvania says you did it wrong you've got to let the other side let the anti-federalists have their say And if they have their say, then they'll be part of the final decision. That's the sort of non-partisanship that this place represents and that Washington represented. And he admonished Pennsylvania for the way you ratified the Constitution, even though it was the first state to do it. And so I think that's what he Listen. Listen to the other side. Let everyone have their say. And let them be part of a reasoned decision. And then carry through. Beautiful. Respect the Constitution. Listen to all sides.
1: Doug Bradburn, founding director of Mount Vernon Presidential Library. Last word to you.
2: Humility in action was crucial for him. It's already been expressed in, in you know, humble to the document, the rule of law, humble uh, in the way you listen to people. And that was fundamental to what Washington did. Uh, and he, you know he would say, and it's already been expressed many times here, he would say, you, you have to humility in action, surround yourself with really good people, as Akil has mentioned. Try to, you know, recognize that you don't always know the right way, as as Ed has suggested. And one of the great things he did in his presidency, which wasn't repeated until Monroe, and I don't know who repeated after that, I guess technologies would have to increase, was he visited every state of the union at a time when there isn't railroads and cars and planes and there's no roads really worth going on, (laughs) and he visited the people. And I think presidents today are so in the bubble in D.C. surrounded not only by yes men, but surrounded by a media apparatus and security guards and, and not getting out there amongst the people, which is the whole point of having a country that runs itself, the people are the ones who are sovereign. And the president represents the nation and has a duty to get out there and show yourself and listen uh, to the people. So I, I think it's, a, a we all agree that, that these, you know, this notion of listening, being humble, you know, being, being humble to the law uh, is, is the way to be a successful president.
1: Inspiring advice from George Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our panelists.
0: Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilborn and edited by Jason Gregory. It was produced by yours truly. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. The host of We the People is Jeffrey Rosen, who will be back next week. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page and Twitter feed at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at slash panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Nikandra Yanachi.